The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Over the last few weeks, I've been exploring with this group the teachings on the Four Noble Truths that at one point the Buddha said, everything I teach is about suffering and the end of suffering. And that's basically a simple expression of the Four Noble Truths. Suffering, what suffering is, how it comes to be, is described in the first two Noble Truths. There is suffering and there is an arising of suffering and uh, the arising kind of has a, a seed or a cause and then the second two noble truths are about the ending of suffering, that there, it is possible to come to the end of suffering and it is, there is a path, a way that leads to the end of suffering. So in the last little while, starting really with this exploration of what suffering is, because we have some misconceptions about it, um, some, some ideas about potentially what it would mean to come to the end of suffering, uh, it doesn't, but it, one thing it doesn't mean is that all unpleasant experience will cease. But what it does mean is that what unpleasant experience tends to do for us <laughs> is to create reactivity, aversion, hatred, confusion, um, a desire for something pleasant, a clinging to wanting it to be a certain way. And that is all a mental tightening and constriction around kind of a sense of um, um, it's not okay or it's not, that I cannot be okay with this unpleasant thing here. That I cannot be at peace or at ease in the heart without, with this unpleasant experience. I cannot be at ease with things the way they are. And this is the point that the Buddha pointed to, that it even with things that are unpleasant, challenging, difficult, even unjust in the world, there is a way for the heart to receive that and be responsive rather than reactive. So there is a way to have a a heart that is not constricted, not tight, not pushing, not pulling, not essentially resisting things as they already are, a lot of our suffering has to do with the, the kind of relationship we have to what's already here. It's almost like we're trying to go back and figure out how can I make this not be here right now? And so the, 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 the exploration around coming into alignment with, well, this is the way it is right now, and a coming into alignment with that as true not resisting what is here right now, actually, paradoxically in some way, it seems paradoxical that that non-resistance gives us a capacity to respond much more skillfully, to respond to the, the, the difficulties and challenges that we face with a heart that's not constricted, but rather with a heart that is more receptive and open. And so this... Um, teaching around the, the freedom from suffering. 
we might think, and based on the, the habitual ways that we respond to suffering, the, the ways in which greed and aversion come into play in terms of how we respond to things as they are in this moment. You know, greed and aversion habitually believe that they are the motivators of our actions. That if, if I didn't like something that I wouldn't do anything about something difficult in the world. That if if that not liking or that aversion wasn't there, aversion has the story that you wouldn't do anything. And likewise with greed. If if greed is is kind of has a hold in the mind, the the story of greed is I'm the only way. This this greed is the only way that you're going to have something that you want. And so the, the kind of confusion in those states of mind has us looking at the world through a thir- certain perspective that the Buddha actually said, this isn't actually true. You know, there are other ways that we respond to the world, other motivations that can connect to the open heart, the motivations of compassion, of love, of generosity, of wisdom, of joy, and so the, the freedom from suffering that's described is not, does not create a, what's the word, um, indifference. It comes with a balance of mind that allows us kind of, it's almost like we, with a balance of mind, we can, we can much more easily move. I mean, I just got this image of, of like Roger Federer, you know, he's, he's balanced and, and, and he can respond to, you know, he's not holding himself tightly, he's balanced, released, relaxed, and, and then he can respond to wherever the conditions need to go. It's that kind of a mind that can be balanced and responsive but not constricted, not tight. And so in the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha talks about actions that are associated with each of the Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth, there is suffering. This is suffering. Whenever suffering is arising, he says that needs to be understood. And so... That's a little bit more of what I'd like to explore today. Last time I began this exploration around this is suffering and what an understanding of dukkha, the Pali word for suffering, is. And so this is um, an important part, actually, I think, our practice not only do we need to kind of intellectually take in a kind of a reframing around what dukkha is, what suffering is. But then we need to put it into action because this understanding that the Buddha talked about is not simply an intellectual perspective. It's not just an intellectual understanding. It's, it's pointing to that, an intellectual understanding of what dukkha is can be put into practice with our mindfulness, with being aware of the arising of suffering. And then we begin to understand it, not, ju- not intellectually, but actually the experience. 
What is the experience of suffering? How does it come about? One of the teachings the Buddha uh, offered around dukkha is different kinds of dukkha. I think of them almost as different layers or levels of subtlety of dukkha. Three, he, he articulated three kinds. Dukkha being the Pali word for suffering. The first kind is sometimes um, translated as the dukkha due to pain or the dukkha due to unpleasant experience. This is the Pali for this, is dukkha dukkha. Kind of gives you the point that, yeah, this is the obvious kind of dukkha. This is the dukkha that we usually don't miss. That's what I largely talked about last week and last time I was here was the the dukkha dukkha, the the ways in which we, um, um, when something unpleasant is happening, we fight. We, we, We have an aversion. Often with the unpleasant experience, aversion is a very natural response. And aversion wants to separate us from that experience. It either wants to flee with fear, flavors of fear, anxiety, it, it wants to get rid of. It wants to, uh, to separate us by getting rid of that unpleasant experience and so kind of an annihilation. This may be flavors of anger, rage, hatred. Or potentially it can be confused. What do I do? Do I run? Do I strike? <laughs> so the freeze. I mean, we can almost think about the, the relationship to something unpleasant as being fight, flight, or freeze. Do I annihilate? Do I? Maybe the freeze is kind of like separation through invisibility, you know. If I'm really still, they won't know I'm here kind of thing. So the, that's, that's the, the most obvious kind of suffering is, in my experience, often the, 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 um, when there's unpleasant experience, the relationship to that unpleasant experience is usually some kind of suffering. Habitually, it's some kind of suffering. It's reactivity. And those reactive emotions are often, when we we actually stop to, to notice them, not only is the thing we're reacting to unpleasant, but the reaction itself is unpleasant. So this compounds the unpleasantness of the experience. And the belief underneath is the only way that I'm going to have happiness is if I get rid of this unpleasant thing. And if, if I'm not getting rid of this unpleasant thing, that belief itself thinks, well, happiness is not possible here. And that adds to the unpleasant. And so the whole mixture of the mind in that moment creates quite an unpleasant experience. And yet, even that can be masked because... In the movement to try to get rid of something unpleasant, we are sometimes projecting into the future with an idea. You know, we're thinking about, okay, it's unpleasant here now, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to control this and I'm going to get this changed and that is going to be my future. And then we are kind of living in that idea 
rather than in the direct experience of what's happening here and now, which is the unpleasant experience, which is the reactivity, and we are kind of projecting into the possible future. And that may have a pleasant quality, that pleasant thought. And so we're almost essentially kind of um, giving over our present moment ease of heart for the idea of some kind of happiness in the future. Now again, with being caught in that aversive response there, um, that aversion has its mind, its kind of its views, its perspectives, and we are caught by the belief that the only way to happiness is to get rid of this thing. And so... um, Again, there's not the understanding that the aversion is not the only way things happen in our hearts and minds. So this takes a little bit of trust to be curious about this experience. And so that, you know, again, the, the Buddha encourages us to be mindful of our reactivity, be mindful of the unpleasant itself, and curiosity there to, to explore that. And as we begin to explore that, we do tend to see that the reactivity itself is so painful. Why would that be useful to know that that's unpleasant, that that's painful? I wondered that at the beginning when I first started looking at my reactivity, particularly my anger. But it was not very long before I discovered that the power of the mindfulness is that basically it gives the mind a little bit of space around the anger. I sometimes use an analogy of a, uh, of a car being in you know full gear and we've got our foot on the accelerator pedal, pedal. When we are angry and caught in that anger, we have got our foot on that accelerator pedal and we are going really fast in that car. What the mindfulness does at that moment is kind of put the car into neutral so the gears are disengaged. And what we get to see at that point, what we might be able to see at that point, there's a little bit of space from the kind of amping up, the the, the rolling forward of the reactivity to um, being able to recognize... Oh, this is what's happening right now. So with the gears disengaged, we can know the car is still going fast. Putting the car into neutral doesn't make the car stop. But it does create the conditions for the the momentum to weaken over time because we're no longer putting our foot on the accelerator pedal. And we can potentially steer the car so that we don't crash into anything. And so that's kind of what the, the putting the mind, uh, the, having the mind become mindful of this kind of reactivity does. It creates conditions for there to be both a weakening of that force and um, a learning about how that force is painful in the heart. This is an education. The first time I noticed that reactivity was painful, it was like so obvious And such a like, duh, moment, like, well, yeah, yeah, anger hurts. But I hadn't really taken in that that 
that quality of anger, you know, the, the, the experience itself is painful and hurting here. The suttas give an analogy of picking up a hot coal. That, that anger is like picking up a hot coal in order, order to throw at somebody else and you burn yourself first. And so that's kind of the education we get. We feel the burn of that. When our mind is focused on the other person and what they've done, we are, we are missing that we're getting burned. And then it's like later we look up and it's like, wow, my hand's really burned. Why is that? What happened there? And so we will experience the suffering of that aversion at some point. But we often are not when we're caught in the throes of it. And so the, the learning process is happening there. We're learning about the, the, the burning quality of aversion. And because of that learning, it's like our system, which naturally wants to orient more towards well-being, more towards uh, ease of heart, our system starts to learn how to release that reactivity. And as that releases, even before it's fully released, we do begin to get a sense of there being something else, some other way that we can respond to the situation. And so this is just a little recap. I spent most of the time last time talking about this dukkha dukkha. Today I want to explore a little bit more about the second and we'll see how far we get. I could talk about the second maybe the third but i can we can talk about that next week too i'm just i'm just going into like i'm doing a dive here we're we're doing a dive into the four noble truths um to cover it in some depth and i'm going to take as long as it takes i did this like maybe 5 years ago and i think it took me a year and a half <laughs> to get through no, actually. <laughs> so, um, so the second kind of dukkha is the Pali is viparinama dukkha. This is the suffering due to change. The third kind of dukkha, I'll just name it right now, and we'll see if we get to it uh, maybe next week, is called sankara dukkha, which sometimes is called the dukkha of existence. Just the dukkha of related to just the simple life. Just that, that there's, there's some kind of uh, stickiness there. So that's, I think of these different levels as being subtler and subtler kinds of dukkha. So the, the, the word dukkha, when we hear the word suffering, we often think of these big kinds, the dukkha dukkha kinds of suffering. But the word dukkha in Pali is much broader than gigantic suffering or even obvious suffering and the the teachings on viparinama dukkha the dukkha due to change and the dukkha due to existence kind of point to some of these subtler kinds of suffering so the suffering due to change the some of the commentaries on the buddhist texts point to the uh, that this is connected to the the way that we get attached to pleasant experience, and so the first kind of suffering, the dukkha dukkha, is 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 usually and often related to when something unpleasant is happening, and so this is 
looking at the other side, when something pleasant is happening, how is there suffering there? Or might, you know, just the curiosity about what's happening there when we are, you know, kind of moving in the direction of, ah, have this thing, want this thing, got this thing. Now, there doesn't need to be, just as with the unpleasant experience, there doesn't need to be suffering there. We can be um, aware of unpleasant experience and know it. Oh, this is unpleasant experience. What's a skillful response to this unpleasant experience without a kind of aversion? We can also be present with pleasant experience without needing to hold on to it or try to figure out how to keep it, to try to arrange my life so that I I just have pleasant experience. That's that's a very habitual movement in our lives is to, to try to find a way to continue getting hits of pleasant experience. And so it's not the pleasantness or the unpleasantness itself that's an issue here. Sometimes in hearing this, the, a teaching about the way we cling to pleasant experience, the way we try to hold on, when something's pleasant in, the, in, our, in our experience, we tend to want to move towards it. Greed wants to move towards experience. It, it tends to want us to make a stick to pleasant experience. Because the underlying view or belief of greed when it's happening in the mind is that having that pleasant thing is what's going to make me happy. That the having of it is the important part. And that if I don't have it, I won't be happy. And so that's the underlying belief that's connected with greed. And so the, the, the pleasantness itself is not an issue. But hearing that we tend to shift towards wanting, desiring greed for something pleasant, we, we might then think that pleasant is a problem. But pleasant happens in our lives, just as unpleasant happens in our lives. And so part of our exploration here is, is can we come into alignment with the truth that pleasant and unpleasant experience is kind of the nature of being human? It's not a problem. It's the way it is. And perhaps the heart can be not constricted around uh, wanting to get rid of the unpleasant or holding on to the pleasant, but more in that kind of balanced place of responsive, with an open heart responsive to something unpleasant, either something unpleasant in the world or in the experience. And what's a skillful way to meet that? When, some, when there's suffering in the world, the co- heart of compassion wants to act to alleviate that suffering. It doesn't have to be a heart of aversion to act. When the, when the heart is open and it sees um, joy and beauty, it kind of naturally kind of delights in that and wants that to continue in a, in a, in not in a gripping way, but in, a, in an open-hearted, generous way. And so these other, these other movements of heart begin to, to, to come available as the greed and aversion begin to release. And so 
it's it, the suffering around pleasant experience actually lies in that clinging, that holding, that wanting the pleasant. And so this is, this is a, not always so obvious to us that there is suffering in the whole process around wanting to get something that I like. So there's, there's different ways that the suffering due to change kind of comes about. There's, there's I mean, th- we, we don't normally recognize when we have something that we want. It feels good. I mean, and the Buddha did talk about there's a kind of happiness from getting what we want. There is that. There is a kind of hit of pleasantness there. The Buddha pointed out that it's not the best kind of pleasantness. It's not the most... Um, um, onward leading kind of happiness there are deeper more profound kinds of happiness available than the happiness of getting what I want partly because within the happiness of getting what I want in the habitual way we are around you know being oriented towards pleasant experience worldly pleasant experience material pleasant experience the pleasantness around having pleasant body sensations, having pleasant food, having pleasant uh, sights, and then also having pleasant um, um, kind of pleasant senses of me or I or mine. You know, wanting to be seen in a certain way by people, wanting to have people look at me a certain way. This, this is a lot of what motivates us. Is, is this wish for the kind of pleasantness that comes either around actual physical sense pleasure or pleasure around having an identity confirmed. Having a sense of this, this is who I am and somebody else sees me that way so that means this is who I am. Almost needing that confirmation in order to feel okay about ourselves. And so the, we can almost say that the suffering of 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 pleasant experience. There's a kind of a a suffering hidden inside the pleasant experience because it's often not so obvious to us that when we get something pleasant or when we have that confirmation from somebody else of appreciation or a sense of, yeah, you know, I'm I'm that person that, that I think I am. That the kind of clinging to that or the dependence on that, the dependence on happiness on that is destined to lead to some kind of suffering because of the inherent unreliability of our experience, of the inherent unreliability of pleasant experience, of the inherent unreliability of other people's minds. I mean, we, we, we look at our own mind and we see how changeable it is. And yet we, we uh, depend, we, 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 we look for our happiness in wanting to have other people's minds be stable on their view of us. We, we, we try to, we, we, we are essentially in that moment kind of giving over our possibility for happiness to somebody else's whims rather than opening to 
okay, what is this here? What is this here? What's happening here? So the, uh, the, the suffering of the pleasant experience, again, it's not so much about pleasantness itself, but it's about the relying on, the, the kind of clinging to, needing things to be a certain way, needing that pleasant experience to continue, needing that person or external situation to be a certain way. And we all know, at some level, we all know that conditions change. And part of the unpleasantness or the, the suffering around, around um, the pleasant experience is related to this change. And so this is the second kind of suffering, the dukkha due to change, we parinama dukkha, the suffering of change, that we cannot control the changing things of the world There is some measure of control that we have. We can do things in the world. We can take action. Like I can choose being thirsty in this moment. Pick up the glass and have some water, which alleviates the thirst. So there is some, some possibility for action there. I mean, that there, and that little measure of control, um, this is another way I think that the, the suffering due to change kind of hooks us because sometimes we can do something to alleviate some suffering or to ha- hold on to something pleasant. But that also relies on many, 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 many things billions of conditions probably, a whole host of conditions of the universe participating in that action. That, that the, it's like the, the conditions of my being able to reach out, pick up this glass and drink with my right hand are reliant on so many things. That, that we don't even think about. I mean, in a moment, I mean, this is a kind of extreme example, really extreme example. Just as I'm reaching out, new, uh, South Korea has launched a nuclear weapon and ec- uncontrollable external circumstance leads to the inability of me to reach out and do that. Or a simpler example an earthquake, these things happen here, and the water glass falls over, and there's not water here. I'm basically on the floor with having fallen over. And so there, there, the, the ability, that control that we have, that we think we have, is reliant on so many conditions participating, things that we don't have control over. And yet, when we find that we don't have control of something, when something doesn't go our way, often because of external conditions, things that are outside of our control, we may have a couple different reactions there. We may blame ourselves, feel like we're a failure. Why can't I do this? Or we may blame the universe that, you know, the universe is conspiring against me. I, I really suffered from this feeling somehow like 
why me? Why, why am I always having these problems? And so just feeling somehow like the, the universe was conspiring against me. And so these, these different reactions are kind of part of the suffering of change, that we don't have that control. If we do have some kind of control and we do get something, we are able to have something that we like. Some part of us understands this, this truth of change. And there's often this kind of little bit of underlying agitation, also may not be very obvious, around trying to keep it. Knowing at some level that things change, that things are unreliable, there's an, there's an underlying agitation. Well, I've got this thing. Am I going to be able to keep it? A little bit of fear around loss. A little bit of agitation around that need to control. And so there can be also um, a kind of an underlying Again, connected to the understanding of change, the unreliability of experience. There can also be kind of um, not only a a kind of feeling of fear or anxiety or confusion around what we have that we might lose, but around the things that we might lose in the future. This kind of of anxiety and fear and the feeling of sadness or loss or grief in advance of losing something. It's very natural. I mean, especially around, you know, if you have a partner or a friend who's suffering from a terminal illness. You know, you haven't lost them yet and yet maybe there is some loss of capacity and you start to see the, the loss of aspects of the friendship and there is some, some, some suffering there. There's some, some, some clinging to the way it was. So some of the structure of how the suffering around change works is tied to the, the greed itself. Um, the greed itself, so there's a, a bunch of different pieces here. I'll try to unpack this a little bit. A bunch of different ways in which there is a kind of a, a constriction, a tightness, a non-open heart around change, around pleasant experience, around the wanting of pleasant experience. The, the wanting itself is a constriction. The, the, the greed itself is a constriction. There is a form of wanting. I want to I put this out here too because I did speak earlier about the, the movement of, of action from compassion, from generosity, from wisdom, from um, joy, from love. There are, there's a movement of heart there. So there is a kind of a wanting or a, a kind of a desire to act from those states. And so... There's a word in Pali, chanda, which can be connected to those states that when that, that it's, it's kind of a motivation or a movement of heart to do something, this chanda, 
that uh, can be wholesome. When that chanda is connected with um, greed or aversion, it's unwholesome. It becomes tanha. And so the, the, the craving, it becomes the craving. And so there is a form of wanting that is connected to the open heart. And I like the word aspiration. It's kind, of, it's kind of like it gives the quality of an openness. And so the greed or the wanting that I'm talking about now, where the, 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 the suffering comes, is not that aspiration. It's not that open-heartedness. It's a constriction. And so the, when there's something that we want, some kind of um, experience that we want, whether it's a experience of being affirmed in an identity or wanting some physical, pleasant experience. That greed, that wanting springs up. And we usually don't notice the greed itself. We are focused outwards on the thing or the idea of the thing. We're focused on that, that pleasant thing. We're focused on that. And so our attention is not taking in the, the greed itself. Because the greed is telling us happiness will come. Happiness will come. Happiness will come if you get this thing. And that's where our mind is. is oh, happiness will come. We are seduced by that vision. Happiness will come. And so we, we, we motivate ourselves. Our, our, our mind is motivated to get that thing. And so we're missing the tightness or the constriction of that wanting itself. So this is the first place that the, the suffering around pleasant experience can begin to be explored and seen. When there's a wanting happening, and often I suggest to start this, to start with something really simple. You know, it, it, to, not, to not have it be if you're really hungry to look at the wanting about wanting to feed yourself. You know, like, by all means, feed yourself. <laughs> but simple wantings, like, you know, wanting something extra, like a, 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 co- a coffee or a, a piece of chocolate or, or something. You know, just be curious about that. Or, or, or wanting to, to do something simple, like on one retreat, I really found myself wanting to look at people to know who they, who to attach the socks to the face were, you know. So that was a real desire to want to look up. And this particular retreat, we were being encouraged not to look around. And so I was following those rules and not looking, looking only downwards. And whenever I saw somebody's socks, it's like such a pull to look up at their face. But I realized, okay, so it's like not going to be the end of the world if I don't know this. So let me explore the wanting. It took a while for me to get there, but I did at some point get there to be curious about the wanting itself. And the, the first part that became so clear was the pull, the feeling of kind of imbalance and offness of that wanting. The wanting itself was unpleasant. And a kind of a feeling of constriction. And then watching further exploring what happened to that wanting as I did not act on it. Seeing that as those socks like went up the stairs and in through a door, it's like, 
all the wanting went away. Without ever having been followed through on, the wanting went away. Now that is not something that wanting is going to tell you. The belief of wanting is that you have to do this in order for there to be an okayness in the heart. And that experience of seeing the wanting vanish without having followed through on the wanting, in that simple exploration, it was so powerful because it felt like being released from a vice grip. It really made clear to me how painful the wanting was. And that release from the vice grip, the heart felt so easeful. It was the letting go of the wanting that allowed that ease of heart. So this is part of the process, actually, that, that happens. The kind of habitual process, when we act on wanting, actually, when we get something that we want. Part of the hit of the happiness that we get when we get something that we want is not only that we've got that thing, but also that the wanting goes away. So it's kind of like the, the, the release of that wanting is also a, a very pleasurable experience that just comes from the letting go. But we're not kind of recognizing or aware so much that there's a piece of that, a piece of the letting, a piece of the happiness that comes from when we get what we want. For a few moments, the wanting goes away. And actually, I think that's the bigger part of the happiness of getting what we want, is that for a few moments, we get a release from that wanting, a feeling of, got it, okay now. And yet, because we aren't aware of how this process works, the, the mind um, kind of leaps into, as, as, the, as the happiness of having that thing begins to fade, because this is another part of the, the suffering around having pleasant experience, that pleasant experience doesn't last very long. It naturally fades. It fades, and then the mind thinking, well, the last time, well, the last time I felt pretty good was the t- is when I got something I wanted. The last time I felt, felt okay was when I got something I wanted, and so we start looking for something to want in order to have that feeling of getting what I want and the release from the wanting. Paradoxically, the engine of wanting is propelling itself. It's that foot on the accelerator pedal. I get something I want. I get that thing. There's the happiness of the having. There's the release from the wanting. That all fades. And then there's a little bit of a sense of dissatisfaction. Oh, not so good anymore. And so our mind starts looking for something else to want. We want to want This is also a part of the suffering of change, that we are caught on this cycle. Because things kind of don't last very long, the pleasure of the having doesn't last very long, then we kind of have to jump on the wheel again and say, okay, get something else so that 
I can have that moment of happiness. And then it fades and then get something else so that I can have that moment of happiness. We are caught in this cycle of needing to do in order to feel okay about ourselves. I, have to, I kind of think of it like stringing pleasant moments on a string. It's like we think that having a happy life, we understand at some level that, that, that those moments of getting something that I want are not the ultimate happiness. But somehow we do think that the ultimate happiness is if I can figure out how to keep getting those moments. I can string little pearls on the string of happy moment, happy moment, happy moment, happy moment. Then that would be the best it gets. And this is what the Buddha points to. This is not the best it gets, actually. This is already suffering because we are having to endlessly find things, get things, do things, and suffer from the constriction of that greed over and over again. Because that's the only way that we we know. That's actually the way that we've been trained. That's the way that we've, you know, that's the whole way our culture kind of works. Have something you want. Get rid of something you don't want. That's how happiness comes. We have been immersed in this view. And our experience confirms it because we do get those little hits of happiness. And then the Buddha comes along and says, hey, there's a different way. There's a different kind of happiness that's possible. And it comes from the release from greed and aversion. That the heart can act, can engage in the world with a whole different set of emotions. The emotions of the, the, the Brahma-viharas, of the divine abodes, of love, of compassion, of joy, and of equanimity. These kind of can be the, the terrain that we live in and act from. And that's not kind of the being propelled forward with that inner constriction. So this is the suffering around change. A kind of that feeling compelled to keep trying to figure out how to keep up with change. Endlessly things fall apart and we try to put them together. We fall apart. There's a poem by Rilke. I love this poem. It's, um, it's from his Duino Elegies, which is basically an, an elegy or a kind of a, an honoring of suffering, of what we can learn from suffering. Beautiful poems. And so here Rilke says, And we, spectators, always, everywhere, turned towards the world of objects, It fills us. We arrange it. It breaks down. We rearrange it. Then break down ourselves. Who has twisted us around like this so that no matter what we do, we are always in the posture of someone going away? We have twisted ourselves around like this. The views have twisted us around like this. To believe that we need to keep Endlessly arranging. So I want to I want to end with a a little story. Um, I think I've got time for this story. I heard this on the news this morning. Um, 
And to me, it was such a beautiful teaching and understanding around different ways that that suffering works, that dukkha works, and some understanding that was shown in this in this story. So, and and maybe a little more learning that can be in this story. So. I was listening to NPR. Maybe some of you heard this on the way in, too, if you were listening to NPR. Um, it was one of those little um, perspectives from somebody who, who kind of writes in and says something that they've learned. Um, and a new perspective that kind of comes from that learning. So this person um, was talking about... Um, social media and how social media has kind of affected her experience in her mind and made turned her a certain way. She said that she was at uh, an Ikea with her husband and that they were um, coming into the garage and um, noticed a, another couple trying to fit something into their small SUV. And it wasn't really fitting. They'd pu- put parts of it in there and gotten some of it in, but this big part that they couldn't get in. And initially, they, they were kind of sitting there looking at the kind of humor of this, of the, the kind of it being hard to get this in, and, and, and thinking about, oh, this would make a good video, we could post it, what would be the hashtag, you know? And, and, and they, were, they were kind of like watching this whole thing and chuckling from a distance. And she said, we spent 10 minutes like that. And she said, and then my better human nature came in we had a pickup truck and we walked over to them and, and offered, found out they actually lived pretty close to us and offered to, to put the, the, the other piece into our pickup truck and we'd follow them home. She said after just a few moments of them kind of in disbelief and, you know, is this really an offer or are they going to drive away with this piece or, you know, they, find, they, they, they agreed and, um, you know, they, they followed them home and gave them the, their piece of the furniture. And at the end, the, the person said um, she felt that social media had changed her, that, you know, she had become this observer and just, like, trying to figure out how to make, you know, get the most hits or the most likes around something. And, and that, you know, she... she she wished or wished for her better human nature to have more opening there somehow. I don't quite remember how she expressed it. But what I want to point to here, I mean, yes, actually, I think social media, computers in general, all the, 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 the devices that we have amplify our instincts, amplify our patterns, amplify this pull towards greed amplify it they don't create it they don't change us they just reinforce what's already there and because there's such a quick feedback loop you know it is such a potent force you know we could stay all day on the computer like looking for something pleasant to to get information about i get we get caught there i get caught there often on the internet looking for the next thing to look for. You know, sometimes I find myself like at the computer, it's like, what do I want to Google? <laughs> Thinking for something so I can get a moment of having some information that I want. That's 
Vipari Namadukkha. That kind of, what can I want? And so it amplifies it partly because it's such a quick feedback loop. You know, we get something, we get an immediate hit of gratification. And then we go looking for the next hit of gratification. And so it amplifies our instincts. But what I also want to point to here, the part that I I really felt I was um, touched by, was that they had hung out for ten minutes watching. And I know myself, you know, when I see somebody struggling like that, you know, sometimes I'll have a little fit of a feeling of, of compassion or something. But I don't often take the time to stop and f- really feel it and explore, how might I help? You know, in that situation, I might have seen that. Well, I don't have an SUV, but I mean, I don't have a pickup truck, but I might have seen that and thought, oh, that's, that's painful. But then gotten in my car and driv- driven, driven off. And my guess is possibly without that kind of impetus towards, ooh, how can we, how can we make a good video of this? They might have done something similar. I kind of looked over and, you know, in the pre-cell phone days, might have looked over and thought, oh, that's too bad, and then gotten and driven off. They lingered almost because of the social media. It gave them an opportunity to see oh, this isn't actually, feels so good. You know, the, 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 the thinking about how do, we, how do we get something that we want off of somebody else's suffering, that's a painful way that this Viparinama dukkha works too, is noticing that, you know, you know that the ways that we, we might, you know, in a group here, tease or put down a group there, thinking, you know, feeling, looking for the hit of pleasant of joining with this tribe at the expense of another tribe. And the way social media works, you know, these kind of videos that are out there making fun or worse than making fun. You know, a little hit of getting some like from a friend at the expense of somebody else's suffering. When we take the time to feel this, this does not feel good. This is dukkha dukkha. And in a way, the, 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 the dukkha of, of uh, change kind of takes us into the dukkha of pain. Because as, thing cha- as things change, we do feel the suffering of that change. And then we have that reactivity. Oh, don't like it when things change. And then we flip back into where can I want something so that I can have something. And so in this kind of context of this story, I was, I was kind of touched by the fact that lingering with the situation, even with the unwholesome motivation, created the conditions for that kind of inner heart that's in us of compassion and connection to arise it created that condition. And so I was, I, I mean, it, it's almost interesting that both the cause of the, the suffering there, of, of like the, the whole social media thing, and the condition for the arising of the compassion was like the same. 
And so the, you know, that, that media is kind of a, it's a, it's a neutral thing, but it does tend to reinforce our habitual tendencies. The other piece that to me this speaks to is the lingering. You know, when we linger with something, observing it, watching it, because they were kind of, you know, they were thinking about th- things, but also it gave the opportunity for something different to arise. And this is kind of how mindfulness works. When we linger with something, something different can happen. Initially, it might just be lingering with the unpleasantness of, of anger, the unpleasantness of frustration or confusion, and feeling that. And yet the lingering with it, something different happens. We have this inner movement towards connection, compassion, kindness, caring. And it can surface if we take the time to be present. So it's time to stop. Thank you for your attention. Next time will be Sankara Dukkha, the subtlest kind of suffering. <laughs>